Good morning, church. It's wonderful to see everybody here today. Thanks for joining us for worship. Uh, if you would, open up in your Bible to Revelation chapter 9. Thanks, brother. Revelation chapter 9 is our text for this morning. I have to tell you, church, these are going to be some difficult verses. Uh, I made the commitment when we started to work through the book of Revelation that I wouldn't skip anything, that I would preach and teach this entire book to you, but I have to be honest with you, uh, if I hadn't made that commitment and I was operating in my flesh, we might have skipped over this passage. This is not, uh, not easy, what we're about to read together, uh, but it's part of the Word of God, and it's there for our faith and our practice. It's there to, in, to instruct us, for us to learn from, and to live differently because we've studied it. Amen? So let's go to it together, and we will uh, we'll dig into this text together here. So we're in Revelation chapter 9. I'll put the, the passage on the screen for you, too. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour, that day, then month, and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops were twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, 
Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Church, this is indeed a hard passage. As sin is now judged. Listen to the rest of the chapter and see the sad outcome of these future events. For even after all of this judgment, John writes this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Father God, I just pray that you would be with us as we seek understanding in your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us, help us to bring this text alive to us, help us to understand, and help us to go out and live differently because of our time together. And Jesus, we thank you, praise you, worship you for all that you have done to secure our redemption and to save us from judgment in this life and in the life to come. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, what I want to do, as we have been doing, is walk through this, through what's happening here. I'm not going to, as I do this, read each of these verses again necessarily. Sometimes I will. But I'm going to explain to you what's happening here in this passage. And then, of course, we'll take some time at the end for how we might try to apply this to our lives. So going back to verse 1, we can return there, look back at Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1, see that the fifth angel sounds his trumpet, and that the result of this, the result of the trumpet blast, is that a star falls. Now, I think it's safe to say here that the star is symbolic. Why? Because the star, as we see, does something. It takes action. So I don't think what John is talking about here is a literal star falling from heaven. It's symbolic. It's imagery. This is an angel. And this angel descends to, at least in the English Standard Version, what's called a bottomless pit. Your translation might say the abyss. And that's very appropriate. What is the bottomless pit? The Greek word, you see it on the screen there for you, it's the word abusos. And it's translated into English, again, bottomless pit. It's also where we get our English word abyss. And so this is where this angel descends to. And then in the second verse, in verse 2, you see that the angel opens the abyss. There are several New Testament references that talk about this, that talk about the abyss and what it is in addition to our passage this morning. I'm not going to show you all of them, but let me just... Uh, identify a few things for you that we see in the New Testament 
about the abyss. First of all, it's the home of the beast. We see that in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. Uh, it's coming, and also in chapter 17, verse 8. Uh, the abyss is Satan's prison during the millennium. This is Revelation chapter 20 and verses 1 through 3. We'll be there in several weeks. But when we get to Revelation chapter 20, we'll see that. And then this is also the place that demons feared being cast into. And if you want the story behind that, go back to Luke chapter 8 and, and see the comments that the demons make to Jesus Christ about asking him not to cast us into the abyss. So this place is so bad that even demons don't want to live there. That's the place that is being described here. It's the bottomless pit. Now when it's opened, we see here in the text of Revelation chapter 9, so much thick and dense smoke rises out of this bottomless pit that it blackens the sky. That's the, the description that John gives us. It's what John sees when the abyss is open. However, it's not just smoke that comes out of this bottomless pit. It's also what looks like to John, and we'll unpack this a little bit, but John sees what looks like to his eyes locusts. Locusts come out of this bottomless pit as well. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the locust is used as a symbol of destruction. Asaph, the psalmist, and there's a verse there for you, Psalm 78, 46, Asaph writes, he gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. Swarms of locusts, as I'm sure you know, can cause incredible devastation on a countryside, on a field, on, on a land that's producing crops. And, and we've seen this even in much more recent history than just in biblical history. In 1915, there was a swarm of locusts that went across Palestine that was five miles long. And, and it did incredible devastation. It was there for five days, completely blackened out the sky. And that's in our recorded history just over 100 years ago. But please notice that the swarm of locusts that's unleashed from the abyss here in Revelation chapter 9 are not just ordinary locusts. They're not just big grasshoppers. These locusts are quite a bit different. They have the power of scorpions, the text tells us. And the sting of a scorpion is quite severe. In Scripture, they're used as a metaphor for terrible punishment. And then in verse 4, in verse 4, John tells us that their war, these locusts who have the sting of a scorpion, their war is not with the environment, as it often is with ordinary locusts who wreak havoc on the land and on the countryside, but their war is with all people who have not been sealed by God. And if that's a new idea for you, look back to the past chapters and what we've already studied. Most, most of you, I'm sure, are, are remember that passage and remember when God places the seal on his people. Verse 5. The mission of the locusts is to inflict pain and suffering for five months. Now, the question that we might ask here is why five months? Why was this time chosen? And I don't have a, a clear answer for you to that question. It might just be that this is the lifespan of a locust. It's the 
the amount of time within history where uh, it's the right season, and of course, during their lifespan, where locusts are typically a threat in these parts of the world. But for five months, the text tells us what, that these will be a threat to the world. And then in verse 6, it speaks to the severity of the pain and the suffering that these cre- creatures are going to inflict. People who are stung by them will want to die. They would choose death if they could, but they won't be able to. They won't be able to bring about their own death. In verse 7, John describes the appearance of the locusts for us. And let's just walk through that part of the text again. Uh, look at uh, verse seven through, verses 7 through 10. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Try to get a mental image of this. On, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noses of their, the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. I would suggest, church, that what John is actually seeing here are not locusts. He's not seeing locusts here. He's not seeing a, a physical creature here. My suggestion to you is that these are indeed demonic beings. That what John is witnessing coming out of the abyss, coming out of this bottomless pit, is a horde of demons a horde of demonic creatures that he's describing here. And as we move into verse 11, we learn that this horde of demons, of these creatures, has a king. He is the angel of the, the bottomless pit. And this, of course, is a fallen angel. There's no sense in which we should understand this as being an angel that is still in service to God. This is not a good angel, a good angelic being, but this is indeed a a demon, a demon of of high authority. See, we're getting just a little glimpse into the spiritual realm here, a, a little glimpse into what happens behind the curtain. And this demon of high authority has a name. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, his name is Apollyon. Both of these the Hebrew name Abaddon, the Greek name Apollyon, both of them in English are translated destroyer. Verse 12, John tells us that with the passing of these five months of suffering, that the first woe has passed. However, there are two more woes yet to come. And so let's look at the second woe this morning as well. We see in verses 13 through 14, When the sixth angel blows his trumpet, John hears a voice instructing this angel to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These also we should understand as demons of high authority. These are not good angels that John is describing here, but demonic beings, ones that have been bound for this very specific time and place in future history and will one day be released to to lead what we're about to read about. Verses 15 through 16, we see the outcome of this 
command. And let's look at those verses again together. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. Let me remind you of this. You may remember I mentioned this in a prior message in this text, but 10,000 is the largest number in Greek at this time. It was called myriad. It's the biggest number that people could conceive of at this time. And so if you wanted to go bigger than myriad, you had to start adding it together. So John hears their number as twice 10,000 times 10,000. Now, I am by no means a math genius, but I was able to figure this one out. How many is that? 200 million. 200 million. Church, if we are to take these verses literally, if that is our understanding of what's happening here, then reality is that there is a day coming in the future where 200 million demonic beings led by these four demons of high authority will be unleashed on the earth and will kill a third of mankind. I don't know how else to look at this. If that's our understanding, that what we are doing here is looking at this text literally. John describes the horde in more detail in verse 17. These 200 million demonic beings had breastplates the colors of fire, sapphire, and sulfur. And they rode creatures with the body of a horse and the head of a lion. They breathed out fire, smoke, and sulfur. And we come to verse 18. We learn that the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur unleashed from these beasts is actually what kills a third of the people on the planet. Here to me is the saddest part. Because even after this, even after sinful man gets the consequences of his and her sin, after all of the idolatry, after all of chasing after demonic beings, after chasing after our sin, and we get what comes from that, the consequences of sin, and people see it, and people see the consequences of their sin. One-third of people on the planet die from this judgment. What we see next in the passage after all of that, is that people don't repent. We see the commitment that fallen men and women have to their idols and to their sin. Look at verses 20 through 21 with me. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders 
or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They see the judgment. They see the result of sin and idolatry, and they just keep moving forward into it. Church, please notice what they failed to do in response to this devastation and this judgment. They failed to repent of their sin, and they failed to turn away from their idolatry. Bible scholar Robert Mounts writes this, Nowhere, nowhere will you find a more accurate picture of sinful humanity pressed to the extreme. One would think that the terrors of God's wrath would bring rebels to their knees. Not so. Past the point of no return, they respond to greater punishment with increased rebellion. Such is sinful nature, untouched and unmoved by the mercies of God. Grant Osborne writes about this. Most shocking is the fact that after the demons have produced the greatest death toll in all of history, that unbelievers still reject God and prefer to keep worshiping the very demons who have just tortured and killed them. Is there any greater proof of the insanity of sin? I want to be clear about this. I want to make sure that nobody walks out of here with the wrong idea about what's happening. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 4 makes it clear. Go back and look at that verse. It makes it clear that those who have trusted in Christ will be spared from this judgment. This is, this is not something that those who have put their faith and trust in Christ are going to endure in the future. However, brothers and sisters, please don't miss the warning here to us. First of all, if, if, if nothing else moves us, church, listen to me. If, if nothing else can move us to get off of our bottoms and to share the gospel with people we claim to love, may this warning move us. Amen? If, if nothing else can stir in our hearts in such a way that we would be willing to risk whatever embarrassment, awkwardness, a, a silence in the room. Oh, what persecution we face in our country. That was sarcasm. If, if nothing else will move us to share the beautiful gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the eternal God, coming to earth, dying on a cross, being raised to new life, providing a way for the salvation of people who may be in this group, but don't have to be, because all that's needed is for them to reach out in faith and receive Christ, to receive that way of salvation. People right now who are drowning in their sins, and the lifeboat is there, and Jesus is reaching out to them and offering to save them. If nothing else would move us to go to them and to share that message, then the coming judgment, may this move us 
Church, might this move us to love people enough to at least give them the opportunity to escape this. Amen? And so please, can we not miss that? But I want to talk about us right now. I want to talk about those who have trusted in Christ right now. Because there's also a warning here for us. There's also something in this text that I think we need to see. Even though we know that those who have trusted in Christ will not face this judgment. Even though we know this. There's definitely a warning here for us as well. As we consider this morning what we should learn from these verses, let me say it to you this way. Sin left unchecked in our lives. Sin, my sin, left unchecked in my life, unconfronted, will take hold of me and it will become habitual. Sin in your life left unchecked, unconfronted. Unconfronted by what? By God's word. Unconfronted by what? By, by the Holy Spirit. Unconfronted by what? By, by our brothers and sisters. We don't like that. We don't like it when, when a brother or sister comes to us and points something out in our lives. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not comfortable. I've been the recipient of that. I'm talking about me. I don't like it. I don't like it if someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm seeing this in your life and it's not right. Sin left unchecked in our lives, unconfronted by God, by the Spirit dwelling within us. If, if, it's, if it's let go, it becomes habitual. And if we continue in it, church, if we continue in it, we walk in it, as John talks about in 1 John, he says, if you choose, if you walk in the light, that's one thing, but if you walk in the darkness, if you choose to live there, We continue in a church, we'll feel, eventually, it'll get to a place where we feel like we need it to live. And some of you know what I'm talking about. I think probably all of you know what I'm talking about. When we choose to walk in habitual sin, it becomes so ingrained in who we are, and eventually gets to a place where it becomes an idol in our lives. Then it's hard to live without. And we choose it over God. Effectively, it becomes our God, at least for a season. And this is idolatry. Church, this is nothing short of idolatry. We look at some of those passages in the Old Testament and we think, what, what was their deal? What was their deal? How did, they, how did the Israelites do that? They just saw the Red Sea split. And then maybe it was just like a couple weeks later, they're saying, Aaron, Make us a golden calf that we can worship. And we look at that, and we're like, I would never do that. They saw God show up in a miraculous way, and then all of a sudden, they're, they're, they're making something. It's something of their own creation. They're like, yeah, yeah, form a golden calf, and we'll worship that. It's insanity. Listen, brothers and sisters, we do that all the time. We do that all the time. We see God work in our lives, and then we move on. And we look for something of our own creation, our own creation to follow. I need to explain that idea better. 
Let me throw out a lifeline to Tim Keller. (laughs) Pastor Tim Keller writes, why do we lie or fail to love or break promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful. But the specific answer is that there is something, don't miss this, please. This statement is worth coming to church for right here. What Tim Keller says here. But the specific answer is that there's something besides Jesus Christ that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. Something that is enslaving our heart through inordinate desires. The key to change and even to self-understanding, Pastor Keller writes, is therefore to identify the idols of the heart. I entitled the message this morning, Idol- or The Sin Underneath the Sin, because this is what idolatry is. Idolatry is the sin that serves as the foundation for whatever sin you're committing. There are some idols, and, and, you know, we always talk about certain ones, right? And even today, when we, when we talk about idolatry, of course, we don't talk about golden calves, and we don't talk about little statues to false gods like Baal and Molech. We translate it into things that we think about today, and there are certain idols that we always talk about. What are some of the big ones? I could have you shout out, but since I'm, I have a mic, let me, let me go ahead and share some with you. Money, right? Possessions. Power, success, pleasure. And these are certainly idols today. These are certainly idols that will grip our hearts and will enslave us in sin if we allow them to. They go unchecked, unconfronted in our lives. But other idols sometimes seem to fly under the radar into our hearts. Church, here's what I want to say to you this morning. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than the Creator. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than the Creator. Anything that we prefer over God is an idol. And here's where it gets slippery. Here's where it gets hard. Even good things. Even good things can become idols in our life. There are some common forms of idolatry that that are really easy for us to fall into. And they're easy because we don't even realize the hold that they have on our hearts. Let me show you a few. See if any of these resonate with you personally. Approval idolatry. Approval idolatry is the idea that says, my life has meaning when I'm loved and respected. I feel like I have a meaningful life, a purposeful life, if people love me and people respect me, if people approve of me. And if I'm not approved of, if I'm not loved and respected, something's wrong. Comfort idolatry. Maybe it's similar to pleasure, but it can be a little less obvious at times. My life has meaning when I enjoy a particular quality of life. And that might be different for everybody in the room, but if I live up to a certain standard, I have a certain income, certain home, certain car, certain amount in my Roth annuity fund, my retirement account, 
then my life is good. If I don't have that, something's wrong. Helping idolatry. Ooh, this one, this one could be tough. Because helping sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? My life has meaning when people are dependent on me and need me. This is actually codependency. This can actually be a sickness, church. When we help because we're trying to fill something that's wrong inside of us. My life has meaning when people are dependent on me and need me. It can be a form of idolatry. Work idolatry. Now I'm hitting close to home for me, <laughs> personally. And I'm talking about my own sin issues with you up here as well. My life has meaning when I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Anybody with me out there? <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm highly productive, this might be your place of work. It might be that you, like me, or truly are, you struggle with workaholism. It might be that. But it might just be busyness. If, if I'm busy, if I'm working, then my life has meaning. Security idolatry. Says my life has meaning when I'm when I have a certain level of wealth and financial freedom. That's similar to comfort idolatry, it would seem. But maybe it's a little bit different. And that maybe what I'm really afraid of is not just not being comfortable, but not being secure. And if I don't have a certain amount of wealth and money saved up, what's gonna happen if something bad happens? What am I trusting in when I say that, church? trusting in myself. I'm trusting in my ability to provide for myself. Respect idolatry. My life has meaning when people respect me. Just a few more. Maybe, maybe one or two of these have resonated with you like they did with me. Image idolatry. My life has meaning when I have a certain look or body image. If I look a certain way, then my life has purpose. Relationship idolatry. My life has meaning when I have someone who loves me and is happy to be with me. But if I don't have that, then my life doesn't have any meaning. And family idolatry. My life has meaning when my family, my parents, or my children are happy and happy with me. Please, brothers and sisters, here's what I want you to notice about these, the even good things. Many of these things that I gave as examples here are good. They're positive relationships in our lives, relationships with a spouse or your, your relationship with your children or with your parents, your family. These, these could be good things. There's nothing, nothing wrong at all with working hard and, and saving for the future. All of these things can be good things, but if they take the place of Jesus Christ in your life, then it's an idol. We've fallen into idolatry. And, and so, church, here's my challenge to you this morning. We are saved. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, we are beautifully saved by the cross. Amen? Beautifully saved from the judgment. But let's not live like the unsaved. Let's not live as though we don't have a beautiful Savior and Lord over our lives who commands our allegiance and is the very center of our heart, the king of our life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? I'll invite the worship team. Come on up.
Here's what I want to say to you in closing as they come. Why is it that we fall into idolatry of any kind? Any of the things that I listed here, maybe I didn't give your idol as an example this morning. But think about what you struggle with most. Why do we fall into idolatry? It's because we stop believing that Jesus is all we need. Do, do you remember times in your journey? It might, it might have been. For some of you, for some of you, you were probably like four or five years old when you accepted Christ for the first time. So it might be hard to remember that far back. But probably for all of us, we can remember times when we really believe that. Jesus is all I need. We saw the beauty of the gospel, and we were walking with him. And maybe, that's, maybe you're in a season like that right now, and that's awesome. But when we fall into idolatry, it's because we stop believing that Jesus is all we need. When we fall into idolatry, it's because we're looking for something other than Jesus for happiness and meaning in life. It's, it's Jesus plus this, Jesus plus a relationship, Jesus plus a level of security, Jesus plus this job, Jesus plus working hard so that I feel like my life has purpose. We fall into idolatry, brothers and sisters, because we're looking for something beside, besides Jesus for happiness and meaning in this life. And so the way forward is clear. If we're not going to live like the world, if we're not going to live like this group that sees the consequences of their sin and still continues on headfirst into idolatry, sees all the havoc that's wreaked because of sin and because of idols and because of the worshiping of demons and idols, and they continue on in their sin. If we're not going to be like that, if we're not going to be like the world, but we're going to live differently, the way forward is clear. Turn away from that idol. Turn away from your idol and turn back to Christ. Realize once again that he truly is the source of abundant life. Make him the center of your life. He's all we need. Friend, he is all that you need. And when we come to the end of this life, he really will be all we have. Just Jesus. Jesus alone. Put him at the center of your life. Worship him as your king. Nothing else, nothing besides Christ. Jesus is all we need.